If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Professor Salderbow describes the Boer War as the last great conflict of the Victorian era, one that also had enormous ramifications for the people of Britain and Southern Africa. Today, we'll be talking to Saul, who's Smuts Professor of Commonwealth History at the University of Cambridge, about what drove the war, what it was like for women and children caught up in the crossfire, and how the conflict impacted on Britain's feelings about the merits of the imperial project. As always with our Everything You Wanted to Know episodes, the questions are drawn from a mixture of popular internet search queries and ones that you've submitted on our various social media platforms. Putting the questions to Saul was our production editor, Spencer Mizzen. So we're here to talk about the Boer War. Now, I wonder if we could start with a question from uh, Dee Brand, which was submitted on Instagram. And that, that is... What was the Boer War and who was involved? Now, I, I know this is quite a basic question, but I, it'd be great if you could give us, a say, a five-minute overview of the conflict, laying out the chief milestones. 
So the, <clears throat> the Boer War broke out in 1899 and concluded uh, with the Treaty of Vereniging in 1902. It was a war which was long in the making. Uh, in fact, many people distinguished between the First Boer War, the 1880-1881 uh, War, where the Transvaal regained its independence um, from the British, and called that the First Boer War. And indeed, there was for at least 25 years in South Africa a constant attempt by the British to um, impose forms of confederation on a region which was extremely uh, diverse to British colonies, to Boer republics, a number of African polities and kingdoms who uh, were still functioning. The Boer wanted to, the, the British wanted to tighten this all up, neaten this all up yeah. uh, in their interest to gain overall control. And then you have diamonds discovered in the area around Kimberley in 1867 and gold in Johannesburg um, in 1886. And that means that this very confused late 19th century battle for geostrategic control is given a new sharpness through this mineral wealth. And increasingly, the British are wanting to gain control. Uh, they do manage to get, get hold of the diamond mines through a kind of legal mechanisms, um, which is then absorbed into the Cape. Um, but the tough nut to crack is the Transvaal under the presidency of uh, Paul Kruger. And uh, by the last years of the 19th century, um, the Transvaal gold mines are producing you know, more gold than anywhere else in the world. Um, and the British, uh, partly for their political reasons of wanting to finally impose their system of overall control through form of confederation, but also because the wealth of the gold mines is now so important. Johannesburg is an, an international destination for um, uh, for investment. The city of London is very involved in the um, in the process of, um, of of gaining control of 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 gold, and so it has much greater significance. Yeah. And in 1897. Um, Lord Milner, who's one of the kind of uh, British proconsuls, is sent out to the Cape um, as High Commissioner to finally sort the problem out. And he ramps up the pressure on Kruger all the way through. Uh, for example, he complains that British Aitlanders, outlanders, as to say, British-speaking um, workers on the mines uh, are not given franchise rights uh, by Kruger. They have uh, to serve five years. He complains about the dynamite monopoly. He regards Kruger as a kind of uh, flat-earther uh, Dutch um, Puritan who's ill-suited to running a modern economy. And the pressure is ramped up more and more in 1895-1896. Uh, Rhodes, Cecil Rhodes, the mining magnate, and then the Prime Minister of the Cape, uh, sends in his um, auxiliary uh, Jamison, and they attempt to raid the Transvaal and promote um, effectively uh, a putsch um, with the help of the eight Londoners in Johannesburg, and that <clears throat> that completely fails. Yeah. Uh, that completely fails, and Kruger rounds up the Jamison raiders um, and puts them in jail. 
Um, but from that moment of the Jamison Raid, 1896, there is really no pause in the ramping up of political pressure as Milner becomes ever more determined to resolve this, either through war or through negotiations. But negotiations are not really uh, on the cards because what Kruger says is, you know, you don't want, you, you want my country. And eventually in um, 1899, with the Boers realising that the British mean to wage war, launch a, a preemptive attack and um, encircle a number of key towns and cities um, in siege warfare. And um, those are fairly protracted, Ladysmith, Mafeking, uh, and so on, Kimberley. Um, but eventually those by 1900, um, and particularly the relief of Mafeking and Ladysmith, these are big moments in the Boer War. And the British under General Roberts enter Bloemfontein and Pretoria, the capitals of the two Boer republics. And most people think that this is the end of the war. Um, But the Boers, the bitter enders, as they're called, um, decide that they're not prepared to accept defeat. And so effectively, this um, army of men who have always been fighting in commandos, in sort of civil commandos, leave um, for the felt and begin a long and protracted guerrilla war. Um, and the British realize then that they need new tactics. So they bring in a new general, uh, Kitchener of World War I fame, and he inaugurates a um, pretty devastating um, strategy which involves setting up blockhouses um, all along the main arteries, the railways, and so forth. Um, and then setting up concentration camps in order to, where he drives poor women and children into these concentration camps. And this is an attempt to starve the Boer fighters uh, so they can't go back to their farms to, um, to, to, to eat and, uh, and to recover. And um, this is a, a vicious and a new kind of warfare, total warfare, if you like, which goes on until 1902, uh, the Treaty of Vereniging, when the British and the Boers finally get together and sign a peace agreement. Now, not everyone agrees that Boer War is the best terminology, the, the best way to describe this conflict, do they? Afrikaners used to call it the, the Britse Boerloch, the, the war against the British. Um, and round about the centenary of the Boer War, um, it became and still is, at least in academic parlance, much more common to refer to it as the South African War. Yeah. And the reason for that is um, twofold. Firstly, um, when the Boer War occurred, that's the 1899 to 1902 war, there was a sort of gentleman's agreement that this was a white man's war. Yeah. And um, that was partly because of the fear of, Uh, you know, giving Africans uh, guns. In fact, of course, Africans were uh, fought and participated in various capacities on both sides of the war and died in the concentration camp. So the South African war reflects the idea that this was not just a white man's war, this was a pan-South African war. And it also reflects the fact that, in a way, it was a civil war. Uh, It was a war for South Africa. There was no... South Africa that existed as a nation state until 1910. And 
that happened very directly as a result of the war. So many people prefer, academics certainly, and in teaching prefer to call it the South African War as more accurate. But somehow the term Boer War uh, has continued to stick. Now, my next question comes from MHFQ, also on Instagram. And that question is, what role did armaments play in the conflict? But I want to broaden this out a bit, if I could, Mm -hmm. Um, to ask me, why did it take... um, you know, the most formidable imperial powers in the mm. world so long to bring its advantages in terms of men and material, including mm. arm- armaments, to bear against the, the Boers? I mean, could the British mm. be accused of complacency? Well, the British had been used to winning and fighting and mostly winning uh, small colonial conflicts, small wars. And uh, they did, I think, Uh, believe that they'd be able to knock the Boers over uh, very easily, just as in the First Boer War, uh, Collie thought that he could, uh, he thought the Boers were not really capable of fighting. So they certainly underestimated the Boers. The Boers were uh, people who lived on farms, they were used to horses, they knew the landscape, the topography, and they also were able to source uh, extremely good guns, German Mauser guns, um, because they were obviously people who, who, who shot for the hunt and so forth. So they were extremely skilled and mobile fighters. Um, Kruger also was able to secure um, quite significant field uh, artillery. So although the British forces uh, together, that's the, the British, the Dominion forces, Canadians, Australians, um, and also colonial British forces numbered probably about half a million all in all, vastly outnumbering the Boers. Um, They certainly underestimated the uh, commitment of the Boers to defend their independence and also their proficiency on open fields of battle. How effective was the Boers' uh, tactic of, of what we term guerrilla warfare? I mean, was this something that the British were, were used to combating? Well, this wasn't something that the that the that the British were used to. Um, the Boers, in a way, made an error, at least it seems so in hindsight, by besieging um, the, the British, because eventually the British were able to use their superior numbers and and and, and artillery power to break those sieges. Um, but the guerrilla war was something new, and um, the Boers were mobile, they were skilled, um, they had these uh, very effective guns, and uh, which in many ways outperformed the Lee Metfords and Lee Enfields that the British had. Um, but we should also remember that most of the people who died in the war, uh, certainly most of the Boers, died from disease and um so there were a lot of civilians who died, um, and a lot of the casualties um, were casualties from um, not so much military, direct military engagements, but from the consequences of this total war. I mean, that, that does kind of lead me on to my next question. I mean, what was life like for uh, Boer women and children caught in the crossfire of, of this conflict? Women and children suffered enormously Uh, If you go to the Museum of the Boer War in Bloemfontein and you look at the exhibits, you realize very quickly that this really was, uh, became a war perpetrated um, on women and children. In the guerrilla phase um, of the war, um, women, Boer women and children 
and also um, blacks who were servants and allies of the Boers were moved into concentration camps. And as many as 30,000 Boer women and children died in these concentration camps. Of course, they were not intentionally killed. They died from diseases of uh, typhoid uh, and um, as a result of lack of hygiene and also from starvation. So although they were not directly caught up in the crossfire, they suffered because they saw their farms, their homesteads burnt to the ground. They were moved to these concentration camps and, and thousands and thousands died. Now, you just mentioned the, the concentration camps there, and that's a question um, submitted by Antique Steel on Instagram. That question is, how accurate is the statement that the British used concentration camps? Now, you, you obviously clearly think that, think that they did. I mean, this is a hugely controversial aspect of, of, of the conflict, isn't it? I mean, what do you say to those politicians and his, historians who've, who've argued that that the camps were set up for the Boers' own protection, or indeed that the, their mortality rates were no worse in Glasgow at the time. Uh, they were moved into concentration camps, and they were concentration camps because they were called concentration camps in order to starve the Boer fighters uh, and to prevent them from, um, get, uh, from, from, from going home to uh, replenish um, their stocks and so forth. Um, these were not necessarily the first concentration camps in the world. Some people argue that those were first used in Cuba. Uh, they were, of course, also used by the Germans in, um, in, in Namibia. Um, and the important thing is, of course, they were not intended as extermination camps. They were concentration camps. They were often surrounded by barbed wire. Um, they were under very close supervision. And... Um, as I said, something like 28 to 30,000 Boer women and children died in these camps. And we now know that around 20,000 black uh, supporters and auxiliaries of the Boers died themselves in separate uh, camps, racially segregated camps. So there's no doubt that they existed. There's no doubt that uh, many more Boers died in concentration camps than died in the field of battle. And... Um, we actually know a great deal about the concentration camps and the horrors of the concentration camps uh, from a very interesting British pacifist uh, called uh, Emily Hobhouse. Emily Hobhouse, um, who had uh, links to the Quakers, uh, went out um, to South Africa to investigate the camps, to, to investigate the uh, appalling conditions. And she reported this. And the, one of the people she reported to was the liberal leader, um, Campbell Bannerman, yeah. who later went on to call, refer to the Boer War as methods of barbarism. So there's no question um, that these concentration camps existed, that they were brutal, um, and that they, frankly, played a very significant role in the end in defeating the Boers. Still to come on the History Extra podcast... And they are very much taken by the fact that the Boers um, outfight the British and that many of the recruits, the British recruits, uh, coming from cities like London, are ill-nourished. There is a great fear that of eugenic deterioration in the British working classes. Mm. 
we don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now, Mr. DeWeave on Instagram wants to know how was the conflict viewed by the British public at the time? Was it a popular war? Mm. Well, that's a very good question. Um, We should remember that the Boer War took place. um, It was the kind of culmination of uh, the jingoism in Britain that uh, really came to to light in the um, Mm. Afghan War of the 1870s. Um, so there was a tremendous amount of patriotism, a tremendous amount of enthusiasm, um, and a great deal of arrogance and complacency. Um, when the Boer War failed to finish um, in a matter of weeks, um, and when the uh, British um, were besieged in places like Ladysmith and Mafeking, um, this was given enormous coverage in the press. We should remember, too, that this there were many... Um, British journalists who were uh, uh, reporting. Uh, Churchill, of course, was one of them. Edgar Wallace was another. Um, Via Stent, uh, G.W. Stevens, Daily Mail, and so forth. So this was um, covered very, very extensively in the British popular press. And the relief of Mafeking, um, which was under the command of Baden-Powell of the Scouts, um, was treated with enormous excitement, uh, the word to mafic, to engage in sort of rowdy uh, celebrations, comes from the relief of mafficking. So there was uh, a great deal of enthusiasm for the war, popular enthusiasm. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's important to, set, to note that the war really split the British public. It split yeah. the Liberal Party uh, to a great extent. There were various, um, some were anti-imperialists, Some were anti-imperialist, if imperialism meant exploitation and um, doing and supporting um, the 
presumed objectors of capitalists, but were not anti-imperialist if this meant extending civilization. So, you know, it was a kind of early example of a humanitarian war of intervention. Uh, but others were deeply involved uh, and excited by the war, by the accounts of uh, daring do and battles, and, and people like Churchill, um, who escaped from, uh, from, 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 uh, from, from Boer, uh, as a Boer prison, prisoner of war, and then re-entered uh, the field, was present at Spionkop and so forth. All this added to a kind of uh, tremendous uh, popular excitement about the war. The war was spectacle. And of course, sure. it was also widely photographed and there were um, movies as well. So this was an extremely well-covered, popular war in both senses of the word popular. Yeah. Now, let's turn to uh, the, the Battle of Spionkop, which was, is, is possibly one of the, the, the best-known incidents fr from the war. And Matt's LFC on Instagram was, was wondering if you just give us a bit of background to that and explain what happened. Spionkop <laughs> took place over... Um, about 24 hours, maybe a little more, in uh, January 1900. Spionkop means spy hill. And um, it was situated on the route to Ladysmith. So the relief of Ladysmith um, was really the major objective. And um, there were two, um, it was a double-headed um, mountain or copy. And uh, the British first of all, managed to get onto the lower slopes. They thought they'd got to the top, but when the fog lifted the next morning, they saw they, they were, in fact, not there. Uh, the British had, um, uh, the, the Boers, rather, um, had very accurate uh, artillery and um, also the, they had the use of their Mausers, their German-made Mausers, which uh, were very effective, not least because they were smokeless guns. Eventually, the Boers managed to recover and to gain a sort of frontal assault during the day, which was unusual, um, to displace the British. In fact, the British prevailed, but such was the confusion and um, the, the, the deaths, there were several hundred who died on both sides. The British actually withdrew because they felt they didn't have the support. So it is a Boer victory. Um, it's not the most important battle by any means, but I think one of the reasons we know a great deal about Spionkop is the presence uh, of Winston Churchill, who, after his uh, escape from um, Boer incarceration, but also the presence of General Louis Boerter, who went on to become the first prime minister of South Africa. And another interesting um, person who was there was um, Mohandas Gandhi. He was uh, part of uh, an Indian ambulance corps, a stretcher bearer. So at least three very prominent political figures all were in and around Spionkop. And I think that's one of the reasons why it remains so much part of historical memory. Here's a question from Jumping Jacks on social media, and he was saying, "Could you tell us a bit more about about the Boers' history? How long had they been in, in Southern Africa?" Well, that's a good question. Um, South Africa was first colonised in the mid 17th century, 1652, uh, by the Dutch, 
by the Dutch East India Company was used just as a refreshment station on the way to their uh, possessions, their colonial possessions, spice trade in uh, the East Indies. And um, over the course of the 17th and 18th century, the settlement at the Cape expanded, and um, it expanded through people calling themselves Boers, that is farmers, largely Dutch, but increasingly German and other Europeans. Uh, Huguenot, French Huguenots uh, went out in 1688. So the Boers are a hybrid group of um, people who originally spoke Dutch, but then from the late 19th century as part of the rise of Afrikaner nationalism, very much in opposition to the British, um, began to develop their own language and codify their own language of Afrikaans. So Boer means farmer, Afrikaans was their language, and the two Boer wars were absolutely critical events in spurring modern Afrikaner nationalism. So during the 19th century, um, South Africa was divided in many different ways. Um, There were African polities, Zulu, Tswana, Corsa, and so forth, who had not yet been entirely conquered, uh, either by the British, whose presence really grows through the 19th century, or by the Boers. Um, And uh, the Boers begin to think of themselves as Afrikaners, as people from Africa, as indigenous people, uh, particularly from the mid to late 19th century. Great. Now, you you mentioned on a couple of occasions that Winston Churchill was was there at the time. He reported on the conflict. He famously escaped from prison. I mean, how, how did his... How does his involvement in the Boer War and the fact he was there and famously reported on it impact on his his celebrity back in Britain? Well, Churchill um, escapes from the uh, from the from Boer incarceration. Um, He describes his escape in rather florid uh, ways. He swam across the mighty Arpies River, which is in fact just a stream. He comes back to Britain, and in the Khaki election, that is to say the Boer War election of 1900, he first enters Parliament. So it's a very important moment for him, uh, shifting from being a war correspondent to entering politics. Churchill maintains strong connections with people who were around him during the Boer War. Leo Amory, for example, the Times correspondent, and later an important uh, British imperialist and colonial secretary, was at school with Churchill. Uh, They knew each other from that time. The other figure who is important to Churchill is Jan Smuts. Jan Smuts was one of the leading Boer War generals who went on to um, take an important role in the guerrilla war, in the Cape raiding behind British lines. And after the Union of South Africa is created in 1910, that is when Britain allows the emergence of a modern South Africa and turns, in a sense, a victory into defeat, but a kind of victory in another way. Uh, Smuts and Boerter, Boerter becomes the first prime minister, Smuts becomes his deputy, and uh, Smuts then goes on to become one of the key figures in the development of the modern Commonwealth after his speech in 
in speeches in London in 1917. He joins the Imperial War Cabinet and in the Second World War uh, becomes very close and very important to Churchill. So in, in many ways, I think one can say that one of Churchill's formative experiences and probably one that he would want to remember rather than his performance in the First World War comes out of that engagement, involvement, the daring do, the excitement sure. of the Boer War. Now, you're an icon on Twitter uh, asked the following question. How did the former enemies become reconciled after the Boer War and how long did that process take? Now, I guess we could extend this question to ask what were mm -hmm. the chief legacies of the conflict in in southern Africa and, and, and what were the long-term consequences of the war for the, for, for the country of South Africa? <clears throat> well, that's an excellent question. Um, the, the Boer War was an extremely bitter war. It was a civil war. It was a war that divided Afrikaners because there were some who, known as the hensoppers, the hands-uppers, who um, did not want to go into the guerrilla war indefinitely. It divided the British, and it divided English speakers in South Africa as well. There were many English speakers in the Cape in particular who were constitutionalists who resented the uh, the imperial factor. In 1902, the country is devastated. Uh, the mines have come to a stop. Uh, the British find themselves in control of a, of, a, of a country which isn't a nation state. And the only way forward is to have conciliation, reconciliation, through the process of reconstruction between leading Boer figures like Jan Smuts and Louis Boerta on the one hand, and the British, um, who, uh, after Milner is uh, recalled to Britain, his kindergarten, his young Oxbridge-educated men who are the administrators, begin to work towards the idea of some kind of political settlement. And that comes to... Um, that comes to pass in 1909-1910 when the Union of South Africa is created as a self-governing independent state. Now, that reconciliation process was significantly aided by the recognition by all whites that they could only form a political settlement or that the best way to create a political settlement was to unite on the basis of their race against the majority black population. Right. And so the real losers, if one, if, if we might say, of the Boer War is indeed uh, South African blacks. And it's in that period of reconstruction from 1902 to 1910 that the basic elements of racial segregation, that is a systematic political and economic uh, reconstruction of the country in order to ensure that blacks lose their existing civil rights and that they become laborers on the gold mines and on farms and so forth is created. So the process of reconciliation is a process of achieving white unity at the expense of black rights. And for that reason, the consequences and the legacy of the Boer War is extremely important. Now, there are other legacies, and that is 
that uh, even though this process of reconciliation is substantially achieved um, and surprising many people at the time, there were many Boers, the, uh, the bitter enders and so forth, for whom the Boer War, the humiliations of the Boer War, the memories of the Boer War could never be reconciled. And it's in just at the time, 1912, the African National Congress is formed. In 1914, the um, Herzog, General Herzog, also a general in the Boer War, splits away from the ruling party yeah. and creates the National Party. And increasingly, modern Afrikaner nationalism, which finally triumphs in 1948 with the apartheid election, the memory of the Boer War, the humiliation, the injustice, and the uh, depredations of imperialism, this figures extremely strongly uh, in the mobilization of modern Afrikaner nationalism. Thank you, Simon. And, and finally, I'd just like to ask, to what extent did the the reverses that Britain suffered during the Boer War puncture the country's confidence in the imperial projects and in the capability of its armed forces? Another good question. The Boer War was uh, an enormous war. It was probably the largest conflict the British were involved in uh, since Crimea. It's the last of the great Victorian wars. Uh, In military terms, it uh, involves a very considerable um, amount of introspection uh, led by people like Leo Amory, who writes the Times History of the War about the failures of the British, the failures to prevail. And they fix on certain aspects. There are military uh, questions, uh, organization, supply, um, how to fight a war, um, which is not just about set-piece battles, a, a total war. There are questions about arising out of the concentration camps, about modern uh, nursing in field camps. Uh, There is also an interdepartmental commission of inquiry, which is set up just after the war in Britain and reports in 1904 called the Physical Deterioration Committee. And they are very much taken by the fact that the Boers um, outfight the British and that many of the recruits, the British recruits, uh, coming from cities like London, are ill-nourished. There is a great fear of eugenic deterioration in the British working classes. So the Boer War also has an important impact on the ideology at the time of social efficiency, levelling up in today's parlance, if you like, Uh, and um, has quite a lot to do with the rise of uh, social welfareism, pensions, all of these are some of the social consequences which are not directly attributable to the Boer War, but the Boer War creates is a moment uh, of national introspection about the nature of British society. And uh, so it does have important legacies and it feeds as well into uh, the, the lessons that the army draws um, going into the First World War. That was Saul Debeau, Smuts Professor of Commonwealth History at the University of Cambridge and the author of numerous works on South African history. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.
a collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.